On the show today, you'll hear Allison Zucker-Perlman, publicist to the art business, say... We live in a TMZ world. I said it to you, I think, the first time you and I met, and I believe it to be true. I know it to be true. I'm a publicist. Hello, and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, the podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show, we have a guest unlike any we have had yet so far. We have a publicist, not an art dealer, not a gallery owner, not a art broker, not an auctioneer, a publicist who specializes specifically in our business of selling art. You've heard of her name before if you've listened to the podcast in the past, because not only is she a guest, but she's also a sponsor of our show, Allison Zucker-Perlman owner of Relevant Communications. And if you're not already familiar with her, you're going to want to get to know her a lot better, I'm sure, after you hear this interview. But for now, until we get to that, I'd like to bend your ear for a little bit. So um, how about we turn the corner here and uh, drop into the old art dealer bar. I I wanted to slide in because this is one of the ones that can go on a little bit because it's a big one. I've, uh, I've been thinking about this episode for a really long time. I thought about many different things I can talk about in this introduction. And I decided I would do this. You know, I, I've been doing this a long time, and I've made probably every mistake that possibly could be made when you're working with a publicist. And I thought about the kind of advice that I think our guest, Allison, uh, during her interview would probably have wanted to say to you, but she can't either because she has a business and she has her own role and and it just wouldn't be appropriate. But I thought I could at least be, maybe dangerously so, be that person who speaks to it. And whatever it is that I have to say, I can be completely wrong. This is really just my opinion based upon my experiences. But I want to go over a quick little tip list that I jotted down and hopefully I don't go too long on it. So the list I wrote down was this, just very quickly. One, make yourself a priority. The truth is, when you're working with a good publicist, especially, you're not their only client. The nice thing is, is what they do is they ride one client on the coattails of another client. And that might be a little hard to hear, particularly if they you feel that the other client is riding on your coattails. But the fact is, when they got you into that magazine, when they just popped that story for you, well, that was probably because last week they were pitching them a story for another client's client, you know, artist, for another gallery. And that opened the door for them to be able to talk about you. But you've got to make sure to be on the top of their thoughts at all times. It's not plug and play. Don't just think when you hire them, they're like the people you hire to paint your gallery. They're not going to just show up with a bucket and do the job that they do or do the magic that they do, because there ain't no magic, by the way. You got to call them. You got to call them and call them and call them. Don't be a pain in the ass. I mean, don't grind them or anything, but just remind them you're there. The other one is item number two, and it's a very similar one. Be their cheerleader. They don't have bosses typically, and they don't typically work with a lot of people. Mostly they talk to you, the client, or they talk to magazines and editors and people who work the assignment desk at the news. They don't get the reinforcement that most people get. 
they want it. They really do. Matter of fact, I think publicists, a little bit more than the average person, thrive on support. Be their cheerleader. When they get a little story in a little magazine, don't shit on it. Don't complain that you've been shooting for the cover of the big magazine or the, or the big newspaper in town. That's not going to come if they feel like no one gives a damn anyway. Item number three, know what you have. It's not their job. Think about it before you even start calling them. What is it you're selling? Answer the question that they need to answer to the press before you even talk with your publicist. That is, why should anybody give a shit about what's going on in your world? Why does it matter that your artist just made a painting of whatever it is or got whatever award it is or that there's an artist coming to your gallery and showing new works? Answer who cares or why should I care? Come up with that. Write your statement down and then pick up the phone and call them. Because here's the next part. This is item number four. The first sale that needs to take place, it's you pitching the publicist. They've got to go out in the world and make the pitch for you. Invent it for them, and they're going to do a much better job if what you've done is get them excited. If you've got them convinced, there's no reason in the world why any publication should ever not want to cover what it is you have going on. Item number five. I'll just repeat item number one again. Become a priority with your publicist. Moving on to item number six. Don't forget it's a show. Remember, half the press you get, if you get a good press response, is covering an event that's already taken place. You got to set the stage. And that leads me to, well, let's just call it item number seven, but item number seven's a little bit more than an item. This is where we get into the stuff that no one else is going to say, and you're never going to see this in an article in any of our public, trade publications. A good show is like the last scene in the movie The Sting. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie before. The story is rather simple, actually. It's a couple con artists, and they are trying to swindle a mobster out of a very large sum. And the way that they do it, they set up a fake betting parlor. This is during the Great Depression, by the way. And they con that mobster into believing that he has got a tip on a race that is a sure thing. They get him to come into the betting parlor. The mobster places a bet on what is really a fake race. They actually announce it from a back room over a loudspeaker as if they were listening to the radio. And after they fake him out of his money and he goes on his way after a fake bust from the FBI that flushes the room, uh, we find out the joke is everybody is involved. Not just the, uh, the two main characters, not just the guy announcing the race, but the people working on the chalkboard, uh, acting like they're keeping score on the races, all the fellow gamblers inside the establishment, all con artists, top to bottom, including the FBI agents who made the raid. Now, I'm going to stop right here. Don't think I'm going along the lines that what we're doing is what I uh, am connecting with a con. Uh, far from it. But there is one truth here. Which is, in any art show, the truth is, our success typically is dependent upon just a few collectors. That's where our business lies. That after a good show, that mostly the ones that are great successes, well, they were because a couple few, maybe just one collector, bought, bought some very expensive pieces. And the rest, well, that was nice, if it happened at all. 
people came in, they bought some prints, they bought some small pieces. But it's really about the one guy who dropped down six figures in the middle of the show. And our job as art dealers, our job as people who promoted the art show, is to create all that ambiance. We are creating the theater that surrounds the collecting experience. Because really, why would that collector not buy any other time? They wanted to buy while the excitement was taking place. And that's what we're doing. We're creating that environment. And that's what's important to keep in mind when we're doing any of this, that we're creating the overall theater, the overall experience, that we're delivering a very small group of people. If you're hiring a publicist in hopes of getting more collectors because you don't have any, then you're making a mistake. That's not going to happen. You also, even if you have a lot of collectors and aren't completely depending on them, you still, you can't count on that as being the other half of your earnings. But a show done well, you can count on those extra people that you're getting to be like the people in the movie The Sting. You're bringing in the party. Keeping that perspective on what you expect to get out of a promotion, well, that's about the healthiest thing you can be doing. And it doesn't just end with the environment that you're creating. It's also the global experience of your collector. It's what reinforces their excitement about buying a piece of artwork. Not just at the show, not just because there's a lot of people noshing on your free wine and cheese, it's because the artist that they were excited about, that they've been following in your gallery, they just saw him on the evening news a couple nights ago. They just read about him in the town paper. They just saw it in the local magazine. To them, the artist that they're thinking of collecting for the past week has become the buzz of the town. And there's nothing wrong with that. They should be allowed or afforded the ability to feel what they're excited about is exciting and that other people feel it too. I mean, let's face it, as art dealers, one of the biggest parts of our job is not convincing anybody that something is beautiful, convincing them that an artist is important, that their works are valuable, and that they should want to collect it. You can't. You really can't. People genuinely do like what they like. But what you can do is you can identify something that people do like, and you can bring life to that. We're putting those people into a room to remind them that they're not the only people on the planet who agree that this art is fantastic. And then we're adding to it that it's not just people who are inside our own gallery who are talking about it, it's people outside our gallery who are talking about it. Let's just go over it rather quickly. Become a priority for your art dealer. Sell them before you sell anybody else. Cheer them on every step of the way because they're your partner. Make a reason for people to come to your art show. Put on a show. And remember that what we're doing is entertainment. Hey, do you want to know the moment that I knew that this podcast had arrived in our industry? It was probably the afternoon that the mailman handed me a copy of this month's issue of Art World News, and there was an article about this very podcast in it. Because I know, for the past 20 years, in our industry, the Art World News has been a main staple for all of us. It's a place we've turned to to find out what's going on, 
who's got a new print coming out, what the new technologies are in the framing business, and on and on and on, not to mention the incredible insights that have come from their own articles. Art World News has been a big part of our industry. I don't know if there's anything more I can tell you about it that you don't probably know yourself, but nonetheless, we are proud that they are a sponsor of this podcast. Today's guest is not only a fantastic one, Allison Zucker-Perlman, owner of Relevant Communications, a PR firm that has a specialty specifically in the art business. She's also a sponsor of this podcast, and, and I wanted to address that specifically. She's not on because she's a sponsor of this podcast. She's a sponsor of this podcast because she's the perfect person to be talking to as a guest. This is her community. She is as much of a part of the gallery world. She gets our industry. And it's not, you know, I know you've heard me say that specifically in the ads that I've done for her, but I say it because it's the truth. I approached her. I knew that when I found advertisers, I wanted them to be both people I believed in and people who were relevant to our field, that they meant something to us. And that she does in spades. And that's why it's my pleasure to introduce to you this great conversation I had with Allison Zucker-Perlman. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, you can't ever tell anybody that what you're going to do is going to work for them. All you can do is just show them the results. You know, especially when people don't understand PR. They're like, why should I pay for PR? I said, I'll tell you what, for, let's say, $5,000, go see what the equivalent is. Look at what I've done in the past. Look yeah. at the metrics. So if I've gotten this amount of space in the HuffPost or this amount of space in your, in your daily newspaper, uh, use a two-and-a-half-time metric for its value because it's editorial third-party endorsement, and tell me what you think you can buy for $5,000 in your market that's going to make the same impact and have the same audience exposure. And if they get that, then I believe that they understand the value of PR in fine art sales, whether it is an ongoing program or, I mean, it's, it's hard if you're just, can't really do, do PR just for a gallery. It has to be a specific event mm-hmm. for my model, because what I do is very kind of systemic. You have to position it much like you would a rock concert. We're coming into your town. We're going to blanket the, the media across all media platforms, and now certainly that's, that includes far m- more than it ever did because you have all these additional content platforms. I think that's where galleries go wrong all the time. I think they constantly get confused on what it is that they're selling. Oh. I've had this experience so many times where, you know, we'll, we'll work without a publicist and the gallery is going to do their own press release and they write this up, and it always looks like this. It's like, such and such gallery presents... And you're like, you know, no, no, you know, all res- due respect, no one cares. Right, it's about the gallery. Right, the gallery is not an attraction. It's, it's, and I said, matter of fact, you're, Ever. you're re-emphasizing the problem that keeps galleries from getting publicity, which is the story behind an artist comes to a gallery and has an opening is a nothing, it's not a story, that's what happens. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> right. that's a headline, that's right. like, man goes to barbershop and gets a haircut. <laughs> it's like, isn't that what happens every day in a barbershop? Right, it's like, exactly. That's not news. Right. right. <laughs> it, it, but you understand that. You understand the nature of the story. There is, is nothing without a story very similar and analogous to the fact that a movie is nothing without a script. 
You gotta have. How does that analogy work? I'm... Well, you have to. There has to be a story. Yeah. You can't have a movie of just events. There has to be something that weaves them together, or or images. There have to be something that weaves them together. The same thing a, again. Right? Galleries sell art. What what's the story in that? Right. The story in a gallery is. Who is there? What do they have? What is that specific and, of course, time-sensitive event? Same way they market movies, same way they market concerts, the same way they market museum exhibition. If you can see it all the time, no. That's why they have special exhibits. You do, of course, in, 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 in the major cities of the world have permanent collections, and you have so many people coming through that that's fine. But if you're in a town like Oklahoma City, or you're in a town like Raleigh, I don't know why my phone's not turning off. I, I really don't. It's got, I've got it on silent. Oh, because I have my press phone. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I have my press phone. I forgot. You're a publicist. You I, carry two phones. It's one for the press and one three. for your clients. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, I yeah. actually have three. Because <laughs> I don't want to ever someone not be able to get me because that's how I make shit happen. I think I only have two. We'll see. Um, but I You're think like Hillary Clinton. I am in no way like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> with her multiple phones. Uh, yeah. yeah. I traveled with she and Bill to the Summit of the Americas in 1995. So was there a client on this that you're traveling? No. Okay. Personal. Personally. Oh. And uh, so I went with the Clinton, flew on Air Force Two, went with Madeleine Albright and uh, the Secretary of Commerce. Remember that guy from Texas? Who married the stewardess? No. Oh, gosh. I missed that boat. He could have been my second husband. Anyway, I traveled and went to the Summit of the Americas in Santiago yeah. and in Buenos Aires and met world leaders, met President Peru. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I had two little kids. My husband said, you can't go. I'm like, crazy. My mother's moving in. I got a nanny. I'm out. Two weeks, no, I'm can't. going. There's no such thing as passing on opportunities Are you kidding? Like he that. said, you can't right. go. Hey, my daughter was three, uh -huh. two, three. Eric was four or five. I'm like, goodbye. I got to know Hillary. I've got great photos of Hillary and I. I think she's wonderful. And I think she's been wonderful for women. I watched her give a, a speech accepting uh, her award as Woman of the Year from the National Health Organization. It was in Buenos Aires. And as an American, but far more importantly, as a woman, she had done more, significantly more than any other woman in history to ensure that children around the world were immunized. And, th and this is something a lot of people don't know, just because a lot of Americans are sheep or they read the New York Post. But I watched her receive the award, and I, I listened to her speak about the honor, and it wasn't so much about the honor of getting it, it was what she had managed to accomplish as first lady. We're, we're recording, by the way. Oh, we are? <laughs> no, I don't know. All right, sorry. I'll get some of it was done good. with my political diatribe. Yeah, <laughs> some, of, some of it was actually very good, and I, if you're all right, I'd like to keep the part about Air Force Two on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll cut out some of the politics yeah. aspects of no it. No problem. But I, I think there, there are some very good points you're making, though, when you're talking about Hillary Clinton and what, you know, the focus of what she's doing and becoming more about other things that relates to how I see a lot of galleries and also when they deal with specifically PR and that is understanding what their objectives are. Focus on, lose focus on, on well, what? you know, specifically? That at the very end of the day, 
it's it's all about a person collecting a piece of art or pieces of art, you know, from yes. that art dealer on the gallery floor. Right. And everything else that we do in one way or the other has to facilitate that and, and serve that. And very easily over time, you can see gallery owners, though, start getting obsessed with things like SEO for their website right. or, you know, how many followers they have on their Twitter account um, all, all these other things, you know, what our involvement is in a, in a charity. And these are good. They have their purpose. But it's understanding, is that your objective to have 5,000 followers on your Twitter? Or is your objective to have whatever it is that supports this final thing that really takes place in a very simple way, which is someone walking into your gallery, getting excited about a piece of artwork and right. buying it, and, I and think, actually and paying you money. Focus. Right, and, but, and that's the focus. And also building with that sale, there's, there's so many things inherent in what you said. That's the purity of it. Yeah. It's selling a piece of art, but there's a lot involved in that uh, in terms of building trust and confidence, having people really um, understand the provenance of the art, maybe the story around it, a lot about the artist, and feeling that, that that's kind of their, their place with the piece. This is something that, that, that is going to be part of their, their home and their lives and their, their, their collections of all the things that people collect during their lifetime. I, I grew up in a home that was always filled with artwork. It, we had two things in our home that I feel so thankful for now, and I've certainly carried on that tradition with my own home and my own family. We always had art and books. Mm -hmm. And I think that a home without art and books is just like a, a, home, a home without soul. <laughs> I walk into people's homes. That's the first thing I look at, what's on their walls. And not gauging even the, the rarity of it or the collectability of it. Just like, wow, that's interesting. I think it tells so much about who these people are, what they hold dear. And then I always check out what books they have and where they have them. I want to take a guess. I bet you're second generation American. Actually, it's interesting. I'm a third. Third? Which is very unusual for my heritage. Yeah. My but you know what grandmother I guess was born in um, Philadelphia. I was guessing it only because there's a certain status that comes with having a house full of books. I grew up in that too. You know, a lot of art, a yes. lot of books. Right. And for my parents' generation, you know, the generation that, uh, you know, started going to college in the late 50s, you know, they're, right. they're kind of just before baby boomer age. Right. And that, I think, represented so much that immigrant concept of... You know, we're working class, but our kids can go to college and, and be very learned people. And by having a house full of books and art represented that you were escalating, moving along in the classes in this country. Sure. Because you had gone from that immigrant working class to a college-educated generation. Right. And, I, I, you know, this is a thing I harp on in our business all the time. I think this is at the crux of why the art industry is changing, because that generation was the one that went on the ones that went on to collecting art in the gallery system that we now know today because that thinking went along with it yes and, and, and it was a certain uh, sophistication and yeah. it was a certain um i think uh, herman wauk wrote about it in, in a book called marjorie morningstar they talk about this first 
generation American. It was written in the early 50s how they had, this Jewish family had moved from the Bronx to Central Park West. The father became very successful on 7th Avenue, and they wanted Marjorie Morningstar to have everything. And that included, uh -huh. so they filled their apartment. They, the Herman Wauk's narrative is they filled the apartment with art. I do remember, art. she's Morgenstern, isn't it? And she changes Marjorie her name to Morgenstern. Morgenstar. Exactly, yes. good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe That's I pulled that out. That's a book that every, my mother gave it to me when I was 14. Yeah. I gave it to my daughter Haley when I was 14, and that's a book that every young Jewish girl has to read, <laughs> among, among many other. But, but their defining moving on up was having art in your home. Yeah. That was a biggie because rather than some floral pictures that matched your couch or something, art became uh, status, but it also became a symbol of, of intellectual superiority. And I believe that to be true now. I, when I... Do you, do you think it's the same thing? Oh, yes. Because it's not translating that way. I, I do. I mean, we look, I looked around last night and the, uh, here in, in Miami, at Art Miami, and it, it was, there were a lot of people, and yes, it was a social event, but people were engaged in the art. Yeah, that's really reassuring. They came by to look at your art. Yeah, I mean, they, they were engaged. I think this show has brought a lot of that to it. Most definitely. I mean, first Basel in Switzerland, yeah. and then the kind of art fairs they have now. But the whole umbrella of all the Miami oh, shows. Oh, yeah, Miami's There's an huge. attitude around it that's so different from the art shows that we used to have. In what way? I mean, now it sounds like I'm interviewing you, but what's the difference between New York and well, Miami? Well, I have to be very candid. I haven't been coming here. Uh, but, in, but in a weird way, I have a very good, honest response to it because I'm hearing, I know it more for the rhetoric that's around it than the reality that's in it. And in, in, in a, oh, in a way, differ. the rhetoric, though, becomes more important because that's the brand that puts on it, no matter what actually happens here. And the rhetoric is, this is where sophisticated you know, Europeans, yes. younger wealthy Europeans are coming and buying art, and, and again, on this kind of sophisticated way. Yeah, but let's, let's and then interject one of the most important elements of what we do and what the myth and the whole ambience that surrounds our basil. You're inserting celebrities. Celebrities who buy, celebrities who are artists, yeah. celebrities who come to give the glamour and the edge that, that Art Miami has, that and Art Basel has, all of these events are tinged by that entertainment quality. But isn't that everything now? I was going to say, that is, we live in a TMZ world. I said it to yeah. you, I think, the first time you and I met, and I believe it to be true. I know it to be true. I'm a publicist. I can tell you what people will grab onto, and then, I mean, if you give it, let's say you give a story to a journalist about a fabulous piece of art or a fabulous uh, exhibition that's going on and, and with the ability to acquire the art, then you put into the mix, and the artist who has this celebrity dumb or has, has made their name doing this is in, oh, you get a call back right away or an email back, great, I'd like to cover this story. But I think that's also where there's been a cultural shift. I, if, I don't know exactly what the origin of the expression keeping up with the Joneses, what it comes from, but I bet it's the 1950s. Oh, it's gotta be the 50s. Post-war, right. post baby boom. I would say it's no longer keeping up with the Joneses. It's, it's now keeping up with- The Kardashians. The, Kardar the Kardashians or the Beyonce or- you That's know, our culture. Yeah. We can either say, well, we're going to not accept that as being the way it should be, 
Or, you know, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy and do well for our clients? So we do do that. We, we bank on celebrity -dom. Yeah, no, I honestly think that's actually what's going to continue to save this industry. I, I personally think what is happening right now on the top level of the art business, which is not what I personally work in, you know, I've always personally worked the middle. You know, the, the, the everyday millionaires, but it trickles down to that group. So, so you have this sort of buying in the millions, big, you know, celebrity names coming to shows like this. Yeah, they're here. Doing the kind of purchases that wind up getting picked up by the press. Right. But in turn, five, six, ten years down the line will translate to a very different cultural understanding about our collecting. That eventually that will become you know, at the mall level of galleries become this understanding of this is what people do who are in the world of celebrity. If that is your aspiration, that's part of, <laughs> you know, buying that brand of clothing, buying that brand of jewelry and handbag. Gives you status. I was saying, it's a, it's a, it's a, and we live in, let's face it, we do live in a branded world. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants an Apple iPhone, everybody wants a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes, so does everybody want a Tom Everhart, because they get a piece of this great brand. Does everybody want a, a, um, a Peter Max, or any well, Brito? One doesn't have to have an original three hundred dollars or $400,000 painting, because you can also have a Brito suitcase, a Brito ashtray, mm -hmm. prints, lamps. Yeah. And if that represents something at the highest level, that comes with a certain sophistication, right? Sophistic if, and if I have a Brito bag and I know that my friends have read in the paper about celebrities spending millions of dollars on commissioned Brito pieces, there's a certain connection. There. That's this a trickle-down that you're talking right, about. Right, there's a six degrees of separation yeah. kind of thing, but it's only right. two in this case. I mean, I've yeah. seen people buy works. I've seen people buy a Warhol let's say, in a, in a gallery in New York, L.A., Singapore, Chicago, wherever. And the celebration of that at that level. I've also seen people walk into a, gal into a gallery in a mall and be as thrilled, if not more thrilled, with a piece of art that they're buying. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is, is more the egalitarian nature of art, is that you, too, can have a piece of this artist. It may not be the highest and best piece of this artist in terms of collectability or, or bragging rights, but you have a piece of the artist. You have a piece of art that you love, mm -hmm. that obviously you can afford. Um, and, and in our world, just like people go out and finance some um, pocketbooks or rent pocketbooks, as you know, from Rent the Runway or Consignment, or you can pay off a Ferrari. You can have a piece of art that, to you, is as happy and as, as much of a, an accomplishment as someone who has a Jeff Koons sculpture outside their building. And that's something else I, I want to talk to you about, because I've always wanted to talk to you about that. I find it wonderful. That's the only extraordinary and wonderful. Yeah. That art is integrated into all different pieces of our lives now. Art and fashion, one only has to go to New York and look at the windows. Each year, the most couture fashions of the world, dresses that started 10, 20, 30,000, pocketbooks that are 48,000, Hermes pocketbooks, uh, $2,000 shoes, 
They are integrated with art that's either on loan from museums or galleries that certainly get the promotion from having them in the windows. But so that intersection of art and fashion, there's the intersection of art and all different kinds of merchandising, and that goes in the licensing business. But there are also art in, in restaurants in New York. Like, you remember Cafe des Artistes? Sure. One of the most famous restaurants in New York. When I, I moved to New York in 1983 to work for the National Football League. That was the first restaurant that I remember going to that was hung with these beautiful artworks. And subsequent to that, of course, now the Palm has artwork. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people are merchandising their gallery wares through very high-end restaurants uh, here in Miami at Norman's. They're both so, yeah, but I can again, make an argument. I can make an argument in either direction on what, how that at least serves our little corner of it. And that is, at one time, if you wanted art, you bought art. You know what I mean? It's everything else wasn't, and art was. And now you're right. Art has a certain ubiquity right now. Jeff Koons has been commissioned for the most expensive building ever to be built in New York, which is a lot. It which saying a lot because there you can't get an apartment now in New York in that luxury luxury market for more, for less than five or ten million. Yeah. Usually ten million. Okay. Now they're building this ninety story tower, key real estate in New York. And Jeff Koons has been commissioned, and the renderings and the pre-sale advertisements they have in the New York Times Magazine have talk about the sculpture and the buildings in the background. So it's almost like the art, that the, the sculpture that Koons is doing, is the building is subordinated to that, yet they're using the art to sell the building. Is he not a brand? Oh, absolutely. All right. Yeah, and, but with him, there almost comes a certain degree of you know, whatever the opposite of the word irony would be when it with him. Because that was always his joke. I'm not joke, but that was almost the thesis behind the work. Yeah. Where he was taking things that were pedestrian icons and were just, you know, consumer brands in a lot of cases. Like he used to do vacuum cleaners yeah. and such. And, and, and referencing them as high art. Remember, the original criticism used to be that they thought that he was, um, he was ridiculing everyday people. But let me let me rope you back in a little bit here because we could go I'm on forever place, just talking right. about all kinds of stuff. And right. I want and, and and let me tell you why I was really excited about getting you on uh, the mic here. You bring to this something that I feel I do in my own way and from a different angle that most people in our profession don't have the benefit of, which is you get a little bit of that eye in the sky experience. I mean, you know what your own specialty is, which is doing PR specifically for people in the art business. But you have this great benefit of getting to know many galleries, many artists, seeing it all done in many different forms. And because you get to stand back a little bit at a distance, I think you probably have a perspective that has a certain collective wisdom that a lot of people who own galleries and only know their own experience of their own gallery don't get the benefit of because they don't get to see things in contrast to each other. That is what one gallery does versus another gallery or, or even what one industry does versus another industry. And I, I'm looking for a question to even start you off on that because I want to <laughs> get some of that insight. But I think I'll start here, which is what is it that a publicist in your position knows that most all galleries don't know. Whether it's a, a gallery with multiple locations or one single gallery, I think that 
you have to understand the nature of retailing as much as you need to understand what it is that you're selling. Whether you're selling shoes or books or art, there's still an art to retailing. Okay, very separate from what it is that you're selling. So I think that's, that's number one, that people understand business, mm-hmm. really. A separate, totally separate from the category. That's one thing. Are you a good business person? Do you understand your market? Are you getting to them? Are you doing it better than someone else? What's your reputation? Do you stand by what you're selling? Are you good at what you do? Do you think it's something that galleries are any better or any worse at than any other business? I that think has to you'd have to take thing? a sample. No, I think that I wouldn't say they're any better or, or worse at it as, as, as in a group. I see that there are people who are far better business people than others in terms of running their gallery. Mm-hmm. Operationally, getting the right people in, getting people who can sell. You don't want to have a car dealership. You don't want to be a car dealer and have people that work for you that really aren't good at selling cars. Mm-hmm. Same thing with art. You, you, you need to understand what it is that you're selling. You need to be 100% clear on the answers to any questions people are asking you. And you have to educate. Good art dealers, good gallerists, good gallery directors and their salespeople know what it is they're selling. The more educated you are about what you're selling, I believe, the better salesperson you are. You, again, universal to anything that you sell. Batteries, water, hotel rooms, banquet facilities, or fine art. Do you think it's really the knowledge or do you think it's the confidence that that gives the customer, that there's really oh, something there behind the art. I think it's, 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 it's both. I think people want to be educated. I think people really do. And I think there's a, when people walk out, I've seen people walk out of, of both shows and just regular gallery hours who have been underserved. And that's why they're walking out, whether it's a car dealership or a gallery. I believe that the most important benefit of talking to somebody, finding out who they are, what they like, why they like this, what else they own. Asking the right questions will then inspire the trust and confidence because the most important element for buying art from what I've heard from people that I've asked directly, it shows, you know, I have the benefit of seeing a lot of gallery shows, is people go, well, uh, wow, that person's really knowledgeable. And I now I understand what I'm buying or what I, what I want to buy. I understand what I'm looking at. I understand mm-hmm. the story behind it. I've gotten some, some, some information about the artist. And even from the gallery person, they've told me why they carry the art. You know, sometimes people will just go in there <laughs> selling it. Why is it here? This art is here, says the gallerist, because, wow. You know, you're absolutely right. What that, a great, that it's actually simple but great. used to be a very powerful closing room or viewing room presentation I used to give. And it started with every now and then I'd have customers in the viewing room. This was when I was a gallery director. And, you know, I'd get brought in by the art dealer. And at some point, I had this happen a couple times, and I just started using it before even they would ask me this question. But the customer once asked me, you know, how do I know if this art's actually worth anything, if it's valuable? And I just took a break. I just kind of paused for a second. Partially real and really was grouping myself, but it was also a dramatic effect. And I said, well, I'm a businessman, and I can tell you what every square inch of my walls is worth 
in actual dollars, how much I spend every month for every square inch of wall in this gallery. And I can hang up any art in the world I want to hang up. I choose to hang up this art on walls that I pay for every single month. That's how you know this is important. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's it. What yeah. you just said. So I'm, I'm in that viewing room. I'm going to take out a check, right. my card, my plastic, and say, I mean, because think how powerful that is. And of course, you set it up dramatically, pause for dramatic effect, and then say, this is my real estate. Right. This is it. Well, how could that not inspire trust, confidence, this person knows what they're doing, and the bottom line is, he's talking about my money. You know, sometimes you, I have seen squirrel, I only can call them squirrely, I, and I, something comes to mind. I'm skiing last year in Aspen, and wherever I go in, in the world, I, I'm a museum and gallery person. I try to hit as many as I can, no matter what I'm there to do. I walk into a, a very well-known gallery in Aspen. In fact, I, I, I had bought a piece there maybe 10 years ago. I look at a piece of art, and this guy's telling me everything in the world but skirting the money issue. And I'm trying to ask him just how much the piece is. There's uh -huh. no, there's no car, uh, price story on the board, wall. no price on the wall. Yeah. And I really want to know how much it is because then I'm going to move on to something else. I just want and he's skirting the issue. And I'm thinking, now that's like a car salesman who wants to play with the F&I guy. Oh, they're going to take you back and someone else is going to come and you're going to do, you know, the wheels and the tires and all that. I, I don't like that. Well, that could be a lot of things, too. He could also be insecure about the price. Whatever. Which is not, not very confidence from, building either. It's not very confidence yeah. building. The price is this. Okay, yeah. gee, I really like it. Gee, boy, that's out of my realm, but I like it. But, oh, wow, I like this, and that's something I would consider paying for. All I could term it was squirrely. So from the outside in. Now, remember, I also have a dual kind of conception about that because. You were three people in that room. Huh? You were three people in that room. Well, yeah. You were you I'm looking, as a potential was, collector. You were the person who does publicity for galleries. Right. And you're also a person that has a very good understanding of how galleries run. That's right. But yeah. I also wanted to, again, be objective and say, this bothers me. I couldn't be the only person who feels that well, way. Well, did you ask him at any point what the price of the art was? I kept trying, is what I'm saying. So he, he wouldn't was, let you get a word in? Say he would, it would be the what I call the White House factor, which we use a lot in the media. Yeah, I use it with my clients. Right. They ask you, What color is the sky? and you say, Well, I want to really talk. What, how's the weather today? It's interesting that I'm glad you asked that today question. Was Danny, a good because day because today <laughs> I was able to get the certain shade on this brand new series of works that I'm premiering mm -hmm. here yeah. in. Sioux City. So he just was very squirrely. And finally, I said to him, all I want from you, don't tell me anything else. Yeah. Tell me what the price of this painting is today, now, as we sit here. Oh, I have to bring in someone else. That's why I call the F&I guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you that's, let me use a nice word because you're taping me. That's ridiculous. You say whatever you want to say. Was, you know what? It was really shitty. It was insulting yeah. to me. And I, I, first of all, I, that's my experience. I've seen people at shows that it's not posted. Most shows that, that certainly in my industry, they, they post a price. But, you know, I also think people want to, you know, we can get into this at, at another time or not at all. People want a deal. 
I don't care if it's a Chanel handbag or a, a, a Chuck Close or, or a, a Rauschenberg, whatever. I think people want to deal. I saw that a lot last night at Red Dot because I went in just as, you know, a person walking around and I looked at the price of something. It was a $13,000 painting. He says, oh, I just want you to know there's room. <laughs> <laughs> I go, I'm okay. Trying, all right, all right, <laughs> good. Like, I'll give you 2500 for it. Like, What's I just, wrong? I just want to let you know something on the onset of this date. I'm easy and I get drunk real fast. <laughs> okay, right. let's go out. <laughs> it, right, you do the dance. Right, no, but I think that... Do you, I'm just saying there was no dance on that Right, one. but don't gallerists do that? Yeah, but I think they're... You know, look, there's a lot of controversy, and I don't think it ever gets entirely resolved on do you post the price or don't you? How fast do you come out with the price? Those kind of questions. In PR, we how don't ever do you, give a price range. How much ever. do you, yeah. Because you don't want people to eliminate themselves. Right. Well, I mean, then I you're would... out or, you're, or you're, not, you're not in. You're either out at the bottom or you're not in at the top. Well, also. I don't like to discuss you're prices. Not, the problem with it, let, let's bring up a story that you and I had together. Okay, I'm going to set the situation. I'm going to describe a little bit more okay. for the purpose of recording. We did a show with John Lennon. Okay, okay. We, we represent John Lennon. We were doing it with Roadshow out there. And I went out to Omaha to see how things were going. So that's what the show was going on that weekend. And I helped out with the publicity. Oh, you actually were quite good. Well, thank you very much. Very good. And I, we got one piece on the afternoon news. And I think it was in our press release, or maybe it came up in the interviews. No, I think she just found out on her own by looking at the tags on the wall, because she came down to the, the gallery. The journalist. Yeah, yeah. Right. And she was probably 23 years old, working for probably $23,000 a year <laughs> in, in Omaha, right? Waiting you know, to go to a bigger market. That's where they start. Came out there with her BFA, yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's got a shining career in front of her. She's probably never paid more than $50 for a meal in her whole life, you know? God bless her. I, neither had I at 23. Right. And... You know, and so she saw tickets on the wall for three or four thousand dollars, which in our industry is perfectly normal, right? You know, for a limited edition of only a hundred pieces or so. And sure. she cuts that in, in her piece on, on the show. She's now the doing price? the she's she now doing the, the no, she didn't show the price. She's doing the follow-up, but she showed her videoed piece, and then she's at the desk talking to the right, anchor, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and she's kind of doing the wrap-up and she goes, yeah, and the pieces sell for, you know, if you can afford it, three, three, four thousand. Oh. And then, and we're all back there watching this at the gallery, just our hands over our faces going, oh, God. And we're like, well, yeah, of course. $4,000 for a print is radically crazy to this person. Right. But she's not who we're selling to. And that's kind of the point, the problem with those, you know, pushing them out there. Right. Like, and the are... fact that she's editorializing on a lifestyle spot. Completely. You just gave them something to chew on. Right. You know, and, by the way, could have just as easily been done if it was Katie Couric doing the piece. And this is before <laughs> one of the, you know, Today Show or Good Morning America yeah. ever. She would have been said, you could have this for a mere three or four thousand dollars. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> <laughs> but wait, really telling is when, when we put your client, Tom Everhart, on, on the Today Show, when they shot in the gallery, yeah. price never came up. It did, but did? in a beautiful way. Yeah, but I mean, not because directly. Al Roker. No, she did. She pitched the price at the end. She hmm. said these pieces are selling for you know this amount of as many as. Oh, you mean in the studio? She gave Wait. the high end numbers for the paintings at oh, three, four hundred thousand dollars. And then they cut to the studio. They're watching the reporter feeding the piece to them, and Al Roker is grinning, and they comment that he's grinning. And remember, and he 
And yeah, they say, tell her Al. And he goes, well, he, I got one uh, at my kid's school's auction for 500 bucks. Right. And, Snoopy. Yeah, I think yeah. he said Snoopy, yeah. didn't Now, he? that was one of those yeah. that you could never buy yeah. that moment at the end of the piece. <laughs> right. All right. So let, let's do a little meat and potato okay. stuff here, too. But I'm going to even roll it back. You come from a PR background that doesn't start in art, as I doubt it would. You actually start in sports, right? Is that the earliest point for you? No. Or is that just along the road? That was along the road. I actually began um, as I'm, I'm from Brentwood, California. And I get act- out. After all this, I didn't know you were from California. I know a lot of okay. people don't. They can't really tell because I don't like have a, a natural Florida girl. Oh, okay. uh, Florida! I, I no Florida. Or New, was, New York. By I lived in. I've Florida lived in almost Virginia. every major city in yeah, the country. Yeah. You know, and certainly for my career, Chicago, L.A., New York, Boston. I began my career as an intern for James Garner, the actor. Come on. And I'll tell you how I began. Is this um, like during Rockford Files days? This was during Rockford Files. He and his wife, Lois, were looking for um, a gal Friday intern to do everything. Yeah. I saw, and this is the days, be- certainly before electronic um, and or the internet, when people would put up a sign with little shards hanging that you could take their you number. You barely had pages. What are you talking what, about? There are, <laughs> right, pages, exactly. So I took a little shard with a number on it. It said the name Lois Garner, and they were looking for um, an intern slash person to help out at a film company named Garner slash Klein Films located on Little Santa Monica Boulevard in Beverly Hills. I remember this. So I was a junior at UCLA. This I was looking for internships, but I I was want, always wanted to be a sportscaster. And the early '80s, just there wasn't the ability to. But this was um, a company, Garner Klein Films, that made broadcast promos for Westinghouse. By the way, let's put this in the context too. If there's anybody who's under the age of forty listening to this, in the early 1980s, <laughs> for a woman to want to be a sports broadcaster, there was a ton of controversy over that couldn't happen because a woman couldn't go into the men's locker room. That's right. And and well, that that goes into my story of ultimately ended up working for Pete Rozelle uh-huh. and the National Football League as the first real woman executive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that—that's a whole other thing. Um, that—that that involves the NFLPA and Gene Upshaw and why they hired me because they needed women. They hired me from another city. But I'll get there. I'll try to get there really quickly. Um, so I go to work for Garner Klein Films, and what they do is they were the company in. California that did broadcast promos for Westinghouse. This is before Time Warner. So we're for, we're for Seattle, we're for New York, we're for Bellevue, we're for uh, uh, Portland. So they made the broadcast promos in this one area. Who who thought? So the smart, smart guy in his 40s, which to me then was 900 years old, named Bob Klein, uh, Shecky Green. Remember Shecky Green? His daughter, who had a different name because Shecky is definitely, Chucky Green was a stage name. Nice Jewish girl from Beverly Hills High. She was kind of like my boss. So I went to work there. I drove the kids to wherever. Mm-hmm. I picked up people at the airport, some very interesting people. I got their dry cleaning. I helped with their parties, like I passed food. I cut film. I answered the phones. I got lunch. I... Went to Neiman's for Lois, or not? At that time, it wasn't even Neiman's. It was Bullock's Wilshire mm-hmm. and Bonner sure. Teller. I would walk in Bonner Teller like, "Wow, Jesus, stuff's expensive." I was a kid. I was nineteen. I graduated from college. I wanted to go to business school. 
my parents really wanted me to go east. I had gone to a boarding school in New Orleans. My parents really wanted me to go east to be educated because my parents are those waspy Jews who just want to be in the game. Yeah. So I went to Boston, and in my first year, I said I need to get a... Phyllis George was the only sportscaster I knew of. Okay, she was the one woman. She'd been Miss yeah. America. I'm not Miss America. I always considered myself pretty. But, but like I wasn't Miss America material. It was also like for a few years, like, we got one already. Exactly. <laughs> and there were what? There were four stations. We've and, done it. We and UHF. Yeah. Right. Everybody had rabbit ears. I mean, this yeah. is a long time ago. Right, right. You know, we've come a long way in a very short time. But um, uh, I, I wanted to work at a big agency because I wanted to do lots of different things. So I worked at the largest agency in New England called Arnold Communications. Arnold Rosoff hired me. He was the CEO. I got to him because I was dating somebody who knew him. I mean, that's all who you know in my yeah, business. Yeah. So he hired me and I worked on McDonald's, Fleet Financial, John Hancock, Favis Shoes. McDonald's was my biggest client. They put me on. I was traveling all over. You've got that on your resume. You what, pretty yeah, much go McDonald's. anywhere back then. Yeah. Right. But I, what they had me do turned out to be valuable later for me because I was the person who decided what Happy Meals would go into the regional Happy Meal program. And this is before the advent of licensing, where Disney would put them in. And it was the beginning of all of that. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like it is now, where now you have, you know, one month is Disney, the next month is Universal, then you have Star Trek, right. you have Smurf, you have whatever it is. So then I got into the, I got to understand licensing. Yeah. And I was really just but on the cusp of that. But more importantly, because I know you now in present day as the product of this, that's, that's the beginning of tie-ins. It's not just licensing. It's the beginning of tie-ins. It's the idea that, you know, what the hell does a movie have to do with a, with a hamburger restaurant? Right, and well, how's that going to get people to come in? Yeah, and how well, does that benefit what? both of them? And, right. right. So, uh, yeah, th- th- and this was really, I mean, this was really in marketing, in terms of marketing, um, an explosion. So I am always on to the next better and best thing. And certainly in my career evolution, the CEO of Arnold Communications was a guy named Jerry Golden. He was in New York with a, at a dinner with a guy named Don Olmeyer, mm-hmm. CBS Sports. Yeah, sure. And Don Olmeyer was, was telling him, we have this big problem in our industry. It's in the media industry, but yeah. it's also legal industry. The only women in our industry are administrative, Okay. This is 1982. It's a problem. I mean, the NFLPA, they're getting on us. This guy named Gene Upshaw, they're, you know, the NFLPA is really organizing themselves. At the team level, there are no girls' bathrooms. All the girls are secretaries, and they're calling them girls. Even the fact that they're calling them girls, because we've got a big image problem. It came down from Commissioner Pete Rozelle. We've got to get some women in there, but women who know, you know, who are more executive. Mm-hmm. Jerry Golden flew back to... Boston, and we're in a meeting for whether it's McDonald's or another, whatever. And you know, I walk in, and I, and you know, I'm a young kid on the totem pole, but I'm kind of not memorable, aren't I? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm kind of memorable. You make your presence known. Yes. So the CEO of he was this Arnold was kind of a figurehead. Arnold Rosoff, the guy who hired me, he was old already. To me, he was 400. He's probably 60. But he was kind of phasing out. And Jerry Golden was the guy. He was the golden boy. They called him Golden Boy. And he was bringing in tons of money to the agency. The agency was growing and and actually absorbing other agencies. And I see him during a meeting, and he's staring at me. 
And not in the old man creepy way, like I want to have, have sex with you. He doesn't like. There was that too. Well, I'm sure there was. That that always helped. But he's staring at me there, and he says to me after the meeting, he says, "Can you come down to my office on the way out?" And I go, "Shit, well, I'm in. I'm gotta be in trouble." He said, "I want you to travel with me tomorrow to um, whatever local McDonald's market we're going to, Albany, Syracuse, uh, uh, wherever, Schenectady, wherever." We, I said, sure. So we come back that evening. It was a one-day trip. I pres- he said, I want, you- I want to watch you present to the owner-operators. Because what we do is we presented our-, our marketing figures and sales of Happy Meals and if they increase with this or whatever. So I would, you know, I was a young, pretty girl. They wanted me to present to the guys. The owner-operators love me. We get back on the plane. He says, where are you from? I said, Los Angeles, but I went to boarding school here. I lived in Chicago, lived in New Orleans, lived in Cleveland. He said, um... How old are you? Told him. He said, do you have any ties here? And I was actually engaged to a professional baseball player. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> he said, what would you think about going to New York? I said, oh, I love New York. I said, I'll do anything to advance my career. He says, I want you to take the Eastern shuttle. All right, that uh-huh. dates me. Tomorrow to meet with a guy named Pete Roselle. I go, oh, my God. Really? He said, well, yeah, do you know anything about football? I go, oh, my God. I'm, and I've been a football girl since... My daddy would never take my brother to the stadium without taking me. He said, can you name me all the, in, it, all the um, teams in the what was then 28, before expansion, 28 teams? I said, sir, I, I can name you every team. I can probably name you every quarterback. He said, all right, you're going to go to New York tomorrow. You're going to meet a gentleman named Don Olmeyer. I'm like, oh, my God. Because I knew who produced sports, you know. And he said, and then the commissioner of the National Football League, Pete Roselle, if Olmeyer thinks you're okay. Went to New York the next day. I called my mother that night. My mother still remembers that conversation. I said, what should I wear? She told me exactly what to wear. And she was right. I met with a gentleman named John Bellow, who anybody who Googles him will see. Guy came from Pepsi, worked for the NFL, had a very storied career at the NFL, one in which I was forced to testify before a grand jury about for Super Bowl tickets. Huge scandal. But yeah. uh, I met with him and a guy named Rusty Martin, who was director of player relations. So what were you doing, other than the people you met? I mean, what was your, your function at this point? What kind of... What was the job? Yeah. I, I don't think they knew what the job was. I think that I went in, uh, and I'm not trying to, to really congratulate myself, although I do every day, because that was my lucky star. I kind of crafted my position. The NFL Properties was then the license, and still remains to this day to be the licensing, promotional, and publishing arm of the league. That's what they do. They publish all the... Now, this is before, again, before the internet, they didn't have NFL.com. We had the NFL publishing. So we put out stat books and coffee table books, the Super Bowl program, they, the, the, the Pro Bowl program. It was a real publishing house because that was their content then. That was their platform, was the printed matter. Right, we right. didn't have electronic matter. But what I ended up doing was I became... I kind of... Um, I went in, they hired me immediately. They liked my pedigree. I was um, just right for them. Mm-hmm. I was just right. I was the, had the, the right everything for them. They were very clear about, there were a lot of rules. A lot of rules. I knew I couldn't use the gym. They had a gym on every floor, uh-huh. men only. Um, I was going to, in the beginning, eat lunch with the secretaries. I was there three weeks, and they gave me a secretary. I had no administrative help. But um, I became the director of, what was my title? Director of Trademark Usage 
on, in behalf of the properties of the National Football League. So if you need, this was the age of Jerry Maguire and um, McDonald's doing, you know, uh, and Coke doing Mean Joe Green and all of these first y young commercial tie-ins. Anytime mm -hmm. you needed to to use the, anytime you, you needed or wanted to use any of the indicia of the NFL for promotional license, uh, for, for promotional or broadcast purposes or anything PR related, and I, I was just, you know, can you do this? Absolutely. No clue. But I learned it. And I was a sports girl. I grew up in a house. I mean, I grew up in a house where we watched the 1 o'clock. We watched the 4 o'clock. We, we, we went to games. My dad took me to Super Bowl. My dad, I knew what the final four was. I understood the NCAA. I understood sports. Yeah. So, you, again, going back to just like your gallery, you got to know what it is that you're doing. You really do. You have to be good at what you do. You have to know stuff. And that's why I say about any, you know, when somebody, when my children say to know me. Know stuff and do your homework. Do your homework. Educate yeah. yourself. Figure it out. No matter how you have to figure it out. I said to my kids, find something that you like to do and then find a way to make money at it. But know what it is that you like to do and know a lot about what it is, how to do it. Yeah. In the, in the realm a, of so what I did. It's so many things. It's. It is basic skills. You're right. I mean, that's just, that's just a doing. minimum of what's expected of you. But the other thing that happens, and I've seen this so much in play in my professional life, when you're working with people who really know their stuff, you know, they've read everything there is to read about what they do, which yeah. surprisingly is rare. You know, they, you can't put anything over on them. No. You know, they know. There's going to be no bullshitting them. And don't you and, think they, people, they display that air of confidence? And the minute, by the way, get someone gets caught on some nonsense because they know the answers to those questions already, that's the last time someone's going to try to put something over on them in that meeting. And it's also there's a res respectability and almost um, just a respectable air about someone who really understands what it is that they do and is able to speak intelligently. Also, as I say to everybody in the world, and I, you've heard me say to you, I, really smart people and really good business people know what they know, but they don't, they know what they don't know. And they'll say, do Absolutely. you know, you know what? I don't know. Right. But I'll, right. I'll find out. Some of the most powerful people I know are the most comfortable at saying, I don't know what that is. And, the, and, and have it. the most humility. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But so, it's also cutting to the quick. It's like, I don't want to waste my own time by bullshitting you. Right. You need to explain it to me so we can move forward right. kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've often said for, as it comes to our profession, you know, just again, getting down to where the rubber meets the road, which is at the end of the day, it's an art dealer talking to someone on the floor of the gallery who came in from off the streets. You know, when I'm training art dealers, I often tell them, I said, for whatever you're studying and learning, and particularly with the stuff that I'm teaching them, I say, you won't use 90% of it most of the time. But everybody will see it in your eyes. It, mm -hmm. there's, there, and it can't be faked. Mm -hmm. You know, they know when behind those eyes is the answer to every question that they could possibly ever come up with about this. That gives them a sense of confidence, you know, yeah. that, and, and they won't. It just, just, just knowing that allows you to move forward with the conversation. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. But I took you off course. I, just to jump a little bit. So, all right. So, how does this, you know, experience James Gardner's uh, uh, Girl Friday to uh, working in sports to working in marketing with these big brands to going over to the NFL and designing your own position with them? How does that one day become being a publicist in the art business? 
Um, well, after I left uh, the NFL, I did. I I got married to yeah. a doctor in New York. We moved to Florida. I worked for the Dolphins for a bit. I worked for Joe, Robbie, Michael, and Tim. Um, but so that brought you here to Florida? No. What brought me here to Florida is my husband. He he's he was a neonatal infectious disease specialist, and they offered him. There was a, a, a medical company coming in here called Tenet Corporation, big medical company, and they offered us a bazillion dollars to move here because uh -huh. I never wanted to move to Florida. So the job I had a, So you were I had here, to leave so my job. I was at the NFL for seven and a half years. Right. I was never, never leaving that job, ever. I loved it. So thank God you got a gig at the Dolphins because there was Well, I got a gig at the Dolphins. I didn't there wasn't stay. another Florida football option. No, and yeah. they, there was no stadium here yet either. They were playing at the Orange Bowl, and the offices were down here, not far away from where you and I sit right now, uh -huh. on, uh, on Biscayne. And um, working at a league and then going to a team is like, in our world, it would be like working at the Met and then going to the gift shop at the airport that sells bad art. So uh, I did, but then I, I actually became pregnant with my first child, and my husband did not want me driving from Boca Raton to Miami. So I left the Dolphins, and I, I'd had a nice relationship with a guy named Ralph Stringer, who was the agent for Jason Taylor and Dan Marino. And I had known Danny, you know, just through Super Bowls. I did seven Super Bowls and four Pro Bowls. So, you know, I knew these guys. Um, that's one benefit to being in a career. I met some of the most interesting people in the world that I, I just consider myself to, to be born under a lucky star to, to be able to do that. So I began producing a show for Dan Marino. I went into television production, and Dan is down here, so I work for a company called Osiris, a big production company down here called Osiris. I went to them one day, and I said, you need to hire me. I need a job. I want this job. This is how much money I want, and I'm bringing you Dan Marino and the Food Network. Because I'll tell you about that. So I, I had two shows that I produced. One called In Motion with Dan Marino. We did two seasons, 13 episodes each. He shot 13 episodes for me next season. And it aired on um, ESPN2 and what was then CBS Sports Line. And content was just beginning to change to electronics. So we did some streaming and stuff like that. And then I did a show for Lonnie Anderson. I actually, simultaneously, I produced a show called um, Modern Cuisine with Lonnie Anderson, which aired on the Food Network. They liked me so much, they met me, and they said, why don't you do, they had nobody. They said, you, there's a girl named Daisy Fuentes. I said, I know Daisy. He, they said, why don't you do, you know, you look adorable on air. Why don't you be our correspondent for the um, Aspen Food and Wine Festival, see how you do. I'm like, great. They go, we're going to send you gig. out to, yeah, right, in July, spending a month in Aspen. So I was producing, and I was on air. It was just the way things went. It's who you know. So, um, so yeah, it's, we, it is who you know, but it's also what I like to call being in the middle of traffic. Yeah, I was, of course. I, know, and I had, good, again, I had good credentials. I was who I purported to be, and I knew a lot about a lot of different kinds of stuff. I have always been in art, transition to the art world. I have always, always been, I hate to call myself an art aficionado. It's like somebody that likes wine calling themselves a sommelier. Um, Really, I just know that I've been, my mom started taking me to museums when I was four, she said, four, and uh, I'm a museum person. I love museums. I love spaces that have art and books. It's like going back, circling back to who I am. 
I but you also say. have you're, you're describing a whole career, which is you gravitating towards things that have been given value in your own childhood. Because you just said that with sports. Yes. So first, you know, sports. Who were, I am. Football was important in your your childhood and your home. Yeah. So then you you did football and. Yeah, I and, mean, what I as and, I was saying, I got to meet need people. I remember at a yeah. Super Bowl in Palo Alto. I don't remember which one it was. We were on a boat. We took everybody. The NFL took everybody on a boat for one of our parties. I think it was the NFL and Nike. And we went. I went up to, honestly, in those days, I smoked cigarettes. I went up to have a cigarette on the top deck, and there's a man sitting, older gentleman with white hair, sitting on a chair like this, and there are two guys standing on either side of him, and it's Joe DiMaggio. I said, oh, Mr. DiMaggio, it's such an honor. He says, oh, hi, grab a chair, young lady. And he talked to me. I was like, oh, my God, you're my father's hero. And I'm talking to him. I said, oh, wait, my dad is, you know, my dad was born in, in, in 1926. He's just that Baseball is everything to him. Not that he doesn't love football. He never has But baseball is his sport. He's a, you know, that's my dad's sport. And you're his hero. And, you know, forget about Ted Williams. Forget about any of the other guys. You really are his hero. And I feel like I felt about him now. That's how I feel when I meet a famous artist. What would be the equivalent as an artist that you've had the experience oh, with? Oh, gosh. Well, when I met um, Romero Brito... That was really neat for me. I met him, um, and we really took a shine to each other. I met him in Houston. I was They hired me to do uh, the PR for a show in Houston at Off the Wall Gallery, and um, I knew nothing about him as a person. He didn't know me or anything, but that night after the show, he just was really complimentary of my work. I was so excited to meet him. Um, and usually, you know, with my artists, if I haven't worked, the first time working with my artists, our first meeting, unless it were Skype or something like that, is usually in a television studio, because you know I do a lot of television, and we bring them in to do morning TV, and that's where he and I met. But that evening, we really connected, and he yeah, he just is a fascinating I just realized man. that you have a very opposite experience as I do with artists, where... I meet them early, obviously, because I haven't started working with them, and we get to know each other, and then it's much further down the line that we start to get to do the sexy stuff, whereas... I start at, that's what we start you, out. With you, yeah, you start long before you're ever going to meet them. Long before. You, you show up on game day. Yes, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. They don't know me before. I mean, the work is done across yeah. all, 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 all platforms. The long lead platforms are done, and, and, the, and the article's going to appear in the newspaper, and you're hopefully already in enough magazines. So yeah, their presence is 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 real media, and the most um, <laughs> the best story I have is with one of your clients, Bernie Taupe. Yeah, yeah. When you know, I was very excited to meet him, and um, as was I, and he doesn't even know it's. And we did it in a green room. I met him in a green room of Good Morning Texas. Yeah. And the two things he said to me was, I don't like morning television. I said, sir, I understand that. And he's, he's a really famous man. And not only that, and a very accomplished artist. He's one of my favorite artists. As you well know, I own his piece. His pieces sit in my home, not just my office. Or the right. ones I read. His pieces are in my home. I love his work. Um, but that being said, I met him, and he said to me, the first thing he said to me was, you know, like, PR girl. <laughs> I just want to, in that lovely clipped British accent, is I want to make sure that I'm not going to to proceed a parrot or be followed by a chef. Well, sure enough, who's booked on the show? 
It's Martha a morning Stewart. show. It's a morning of show. It's going to be Martha something Stewart's like that. Martha Stewart's in Dallas, so she's doing yeah. something. So it's well. Martha, just like you were talking about your okay. Charlie Rose. Well, at least you didn't we say that. Today we convict. have the, 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 the president of Poland yeah. and Ronnie Wood. <laughs> <laughs> so they were saying, today we have... Uh, 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 yeah, you, get, you get that once in your uh, career. You get the following a chef the rest of your career. Right. I mean, and there were some chef animal things. Chef is the good version. Uh-huh. My experience, it's always, you know, some dancing children that what? are, you know, playing <laughs> Indians in their <laughs> school pageant or something. And, uh, well, but this is Good Morning Tech. I mean, this is ABC Dallas, the highest rated yeah. station for in, in all of Texas. It's a big deal. And word had gotten out. He said, how do these people know I'm on TV? I said, I, I don't know, because when we walked out of the studio... Your, your your partner, mm-hmm. Daniel, yeah. and I and Bernie walk out of the studio, and there are jillions of people wanting him to sign albums and wanting him to sign stuff. I, I love what I do. You know I love what I do. You definitely do. I love what I do because I think that, that it has were... all the elements that I love. It has entertainment. Uh-huh. It has ego. It has... It has rock, it has film, it has, you know, I represent the actress Jane Seymour for her. She's the coolest thing out there. I, I just think that there's a lot of, there's everything that I've ever done. This is the genesis of everything I've ever done. It's, it's all of it. But the tricky part about what you do is not getting lost under the, the big brand of who these people are, too. That is, at some point, it's very easy to get Bernie Taupin booked on a talk show as Bernie Taupin, the musical partner of Elton John and the creator behind Rocket Man and such. Yeah, no. But, you know, and, and yeah, to some degree, you can get them to say, well, part of the price of that admission is you, you got to talk about his art a little bit and bring that into the mix. The, the trickier part is, how do you get that to become a priority in the eyes of the people who are doing the piece, whether on television or written? You don't and, give them the interview. Right. But, you know, that's a condition you can always put out there. Well, when we did but, Yoko, you know that when, when I was working on, you know, working on your Lennon property yeah. with, with Yoko Ono, mm-hmm. all the questions had to be submitted in advance. It doesn't matter whether it was uh, a, uh, an alternative paper in Boston or mm-hmm. whether it was the New York Times. All questions have to be submitted in advance, and the journalists were, were I had a, a list of stipulations right. that they had to sign off on, because it's always, you know, cover my ass. Yeah. yeah I'm not going to do anything to piss off your client, which is Yoko Ono, because, gee, that wouldn't be good for any of us. I'd never get any more work from you, and, and my industry, a uh, 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 good standing would be lost. But I told every one of them, these are the stipulations for the interview. And she had a lot of stipu- she has a lot of stipulations, Ms. Ono, a lot of stipulations. Um, submission of questions. If in fact the question deviated from the one cent, that the chances are that that Ms. Ono would Mrs. Ono would hang up the phone, and she had every right to do so. There could be no questions about uh, John's anything but his art. Yeah, not about their marriage. Not about his, she liked, she, she welcomed questions about, it's interesting, she welcomed questions about John's fathering of, of, of Sean and Julian. It was very, it was an interesting thing. She really welcomed those questions and in some cases initiated them because they do go back to the artwork. Well, it's so funny because I've had this experience many times and I got a quick story for you on that too. Where you'll do, because I've done kind of your job a little bit where I, I had to. And um, I was in Toronto 
And like a lot of them, particularly when I got a sniff of they really just want to do a piece for what they're more famous for, they don't want to do an art piece on it, I made a, you know, a more assertive deal about it beyond even just selling them the story. I just said, look, this is not an interview unless it's an interview about my client's art career. Right. You can do 10% about their music career and their celebrity, right. and you got to do 80, 80 90% about, about what it is they're in town doing right now. He's like, sure, I got you 100%. You, go, you understand that. That is our deal here. You, not everybody's getting this interview. I'm doing a phoner with you. He's calling in from another continent. You know, this is a big thing. No one's getting interviews with anyone else in the band right now. I got it. I got it. So the piece comes out in the, what is Toronto's major paper? The Toronto, the Toronto Star? Is it the Star? Yeah. yeah. I know it's the number one out there. And he, at about 25% in, says, ex-celebrities, Asian and handler. And then he just goes into the conversation, assured me I wouldn't have an interview with his client unless we discussed his art career. And then we got on to say, but fuck him. Are you kidding? Not literal language, but like, like, (laughs) I'm going to do whatever the hell I'm going to do. So screw screw that guy. Uh, (laughs) Oh my God. Hey, but but, you know, it happened. The best part about it is at least I can show my client, you see, there's evidence. I did my job. That's right. Well, that's covering your ass. That's why I call COA. But, you know, when we did McFleetwood for you guys, we did what? I did 11 cities, 12 cities in McFleetwood. Yeah. First, First city I did was Toronto. Yeah. I'm... And I, look, my job then, you're saying 10%, 95 I'm following a concert tour. Mm-hmm. And I got the dude. I got Mick. So yeah. I know what I've got available, and I know how to work it. So instead of giving, I did, I, I did a couple of pre-interviews, Blaine Clausen got them done for me for the star, for all the, the sun, the Toronto yeah. sun and the Toronto star. Um, but I said, all right, I'm going to do a news conference. But I'm going to do a news conference in the gallery. I'm going to invite every important journalist in that part, in that province, everyone, and, and, and uh, MTV Canada and VH1, whatever. I don't know if you heard about my press conference, but Mick walks in and Mick's handlers are like, whoa, it's like everybody but the New York Times. I had him in the gallery. They're the guys in front of all of his artwork. What are they going to talk about? No, I think that's brilliant. It was I did I a press conference in the gallery. I've been in awe about that one, but it's it's also a big deal because you know for those of us that haven't done the job might not be up to date with this and what the news is like these days. Uh, in a local market, different. in a B market, they have one camera guy and one news fan and one reporter on the field. That's it. That's it. But and in, if there's in, a car accident the remote, that morning, you're done. You know, or, or someone fire. got out of jail or you're whatever. Done. Right. That's that. Do you know what these shootings all in this country are doing to PR people? Yeah. Well, I hear about it every time that one of them happens from you PR people. You know, that it's, shut us down. It shuts us down. They don't have the resources, so they're going to pull an interview they did with Dolly Parton last year when she came to town. Uh, they're they're going to pull bullshit out of their hat because they're not going to have the resources or the editors. And this is specifically TV. I mean, it's TV. really logistical. I mean, if it's newspapers, yeah, they newspapers, have a sports section. They have an arts section. Right. They have a what's happening but in the town art, section. But let me tell you what will happen. The onlines, which would once run your story, even if they have it in what's in, called in the queue, mm-hmm. they'll take an art and entertainment reporter to talk about, to a Christmas party, to ask people, even though this is a leisure activity, are you worried because somebody walked into a Christmas party yesterday and blew 14 people out of, the world, out of life? That's a problem. That's really incredible. 
I mean, I had no idea that it goes that bad. So I want to get this one part in here, which I thought would happen a little bit more organically, but you and I, again, know each other too long, so we just have fun talking. Right. So the whole point about podcasts, our audience, although everybody's welcome to listen, yeah. <laughs> is uh, it's, it's an industry podcast. This is for you know, professionals who sell art. Uh, but I think it's a big deal. I think there's a lot of mystery around working with a publicist. There's a lot of frustration around it. I think a lot of galleries, I know this firsthand from what we do, you know, we're all talking about, you know, you should get a publicist and I'll have gallery owners tell me like, no, that doesn't get you anything. That isn't worth it. You know, and I'm always making a point specifically for our specialty, which is we bring celebrities in and I go, yeah, I understand when you had the guy that paints the dogs and the landscape and the this and that. It was hard to get a lot of press, but we're bringing you a celebrity. It's going to be a little bit different of experience. But still, people need to market non-celebrity-based artwork as well. So I guess the pitch I'm, I'm winding up for here is what is it that gallery owners seem to not understand about publicists? What is it they could do to prepare themselves better to working with publicists? What um, should they be looking for in a good pairing with one? Uh, what is the decision-making process of whether this is worthy of I should bring a publicist in or this isn't, that isn't you know, worth it? Where, where, does, where does a publicist fit in the gallery's life? Well, to be entirely self-serving, I think I'm the industry standard, and I think that my results... And my secures tell the story of what I do. Um, I think that it can be daunting, not only for galleries, gallerists, but we're, as we're talking about them specifically, a lot of people don't understand the nature of PR. But there's no mystery to PR. PR is hiring a, a public relations professional to copyright, to gather assets. And in our world now, there have to be very visual assets. So, you know, digital stills of the artwork and often um, uh, a video piece because many platforms are video only. And getting the, that message out that you have that something that people want to see to a universal group of people, not to one demographic, not to one American Express list of people who make between seventy-five dollars and $200,000, or women who shop on Tuesdays and not on, on Thursdays. It's really to everybody, because you know, you're, you're, as a gallery, you're already going to have your clients. You want to build new clients. And that's what really a good public relations program for the gallery, you can, you can build new clients, bring people in who otherwise would not be exposed to what it is that you do or what you have. And so if I put information, visual content, uh, uh, language, copy, digital information, if I put it out there on, on across all television forms, the daily, weekly, alternative, community newspapers, which actually are often overlooked, I think that's been one of the keys to my success, I, I, I heavily concentrate not only on large media, but small media as well. Uh, an example would be the Beverly Hills Courier. Every house in Beverly Hills gets the Courier every morning. Um, mm. And they're very important publications, just like the Sun Post down here in Miami, because it goes to your door, and um, it, everybody gets it, and it's available everywhere. So you're going to get a lot of traction, going to get a lot of impressions. And I also pioneered the use of digital and so, uh, uh, not so much social media, but digital media, where when I come into a city um, or at, for a gallery I have someone who works in my Nashville office, Joey Amato. He's my director of emerging media. We submit to every event site that there is the ability to come to the gallery for this event between 7 and 10 on December 12th. 
and the gallery hours, because that's when this show is going on. So it's time sensitive. We call it a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it goes into uh, uh, sites that are digital and are SEO'd. So if I get off a plane in Nashville, let's say I do a, a Taupin exhibition in Nashville. I've gotten all the TV, all the radio, everything else. But I'm at the top of the search engines because I have had somebody post event submissions on every calendar from the Convention and Visitors Bureau to every newspaper, every radio station's website, everywhere. So when I get off the plane and I, go, and I push what to do in the city, Bernie Taupin Art Exhibition Rhymer Gallery. Mm -hmm. So that's a technical art. You can't purchase that kind of exposure. You can buy an ad in the newspaper. You can spend $30,000, create a television commercial, and then pay to air it. Okay, but you're never going to get the value that you get with PR. I mean, you're just not. So it's a, for me, it's a process of educating people. But I can tell you I have a very high conversion rate of people, the galleries that work for me for, one of, for a branded property, whether it be Peanuts for, for Tom Everhart, Dr. Seuss, who I represent. You know, they'll use me time and time again for their other shows. I think you got a weird conflict going on with your customer being the gallery. I'm just thinking this out while you're talking because yeah. I, I was trying to prepare my next question and I was kind of shifting between two very different questions that challenge you. One of them was on, well, does this translate to direct sales? Like, can you move from all the what's going on in Houston, you know, listings to an actual person coming in and dropping $10,000 on off the wall? It absolutely right? does. Okay, there's that. Right, but and and you should interview some of the gallerists. But here's the and, problem and ask with them that. that question. If you say that, the gallery own, owner can say, "Well, no, I sold these three pieces or five pieces, or whatever it was in that price range at my show. It made a difference, and I knew them all already." Or the one that wasn't, you know, that I didn't know ahead of time came in because his brother-in-law said something because his brother-in-law's wife is a gal is a collector of the gallery, and that's how it connected. So you have that working against you. The other argument I can make is you can say, well, no, it's about the climate that you create. You know, it's about the, you know. It's creating an event. Right. What's happening in around the them? What's giving that collector a sense that they're in the middle of right. a happening? Right. And then you're subject to the criticism from the climate of saying, well, there was only 15 people in my gallery. We didn't have 300 people in my gallery. And your defense could be, yeah, but you sold those 15 people $200,000 worth of artwork, so the show worked out. I like to think in the end, you're creating a climate in its entirety. That I, and it I is, think that's very well said. I think you want my, here, yeah. here's a real black and white for you, Danny. Black and white. Somebody getting Come a Allison. The ones who get it and the ones who don't. Uh -huh. The ones who get it keep being a go-to place for art events, art-themed events. Other people don't get it. So you're saying, how do you distinguish? How does one who will understand PR and who won't understand PR? Same thing as I said, good business person. I'm not saying a bad business person doesn't need PR, but the people who don't get PR haven't looked into it. They think maybe publicists are only for celebrities who mm -hmm. live in Beverly Hills or New York, and we go to lunch and drink wine all day. That's truly not what we do, as you know, because you've done what I do. I try to get that gig. Yeah, yeah. Let me know when you get it. Um, I'm telling you. If you are a go-to option, and it's an entertainment option, it's like, oh, no, I'm going to an art gallery. It's like, going to an art gallery, wow, there's going to be 
people and wine and maybe, you know, there's their television cameras and you got maybe a famous mm -hmm. artist or you have, there's a story there. It's Lennon. It's, 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 it's Ronnie Wood. It's, 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 uh, uh, Tom Everhart and their, and their groovy people and their celebrities there. It's an event. It's a happening. So why wouldn't you, you do the same kind of PR that you do for a movie or a concert for a book signing of, from, Parker. It's 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 what we do. We are an entertainment option. That's absolutely right. Well, and moreover, we we're we're in the entertainment business. We are in the entertainment business. To people, it's entertainment. The product that you're putting out there, whether you're counting it as a bean counter or you you did the you you conceptualize the campaign, it's entertainment. It's the same thing we do. Right. Every day. So it, it's just a, a lot. I need to clarify that too, because we've talked a lot, a lot of celebrity artists. It's the same thing for an artist like Thomas Arvid, you know, painting yeah, but wine Arvid bottles. Is a celebrity. It's still celebrity. All right, so I just did a show for Mylan Gallery, Tal Mylan, who I do yeah. it. And I did a show from last week for another artist, but he called me only because I had done two shows for him for a big art promoter, big artist, and I delivered. He got like, he said, do you think you can get Thomas Arvid on TV? I'm like, I don't know. He goes, oh, on Good Morning Texas. He doesn't want just want Fort Worth TV, the guy, and he's in Fort Worth. He wants the... He wants a blanket. He wants the, 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 the big guns. I said, uh -huh. I don't know. I said, but I can't, I don't think they're just going to take him as an artist. What are you doing here? He goes, well, we're hosting a wine dinner. I go, okay, it's getting better. Who, who's the vintner? Big time Napa Valley vintner. I said, I'll tell you what, Dallas is a, is a, is a wine town. You know, lots of expensive restaurants, lots of rich people. I said, let's fly the vintner in, and let me pitch it as having the artist, who's the most famous artist, known, yeah. a very well-known artist of, of fine wine, and let's fly the vintner in. And then we'll, well, I'll pitch that, because we'll have him on TV. And, and then maybe the chef at the private club in Dallas where you guys are having the event. That's how I pitched it. <laughs> 1.4 million viewers between the 8 and 9 hour guys. Yeah, and you... Well, you and did. on the Eclipse, actually, the executive yeah. producer called me at 5 a.m. Dallas time, which is 6 a.m. She goes, there's an ice storm here. I don't think we're going to get them on. I said, my guys will come. They'll if they have to rent a U-Haul truck. And she says, all right, get them here. Got them there. It went on. What I like about this story is, and it's something I think a lot of them miss, you reversed engineered it from the press's point of view. There are so many times in this business where you see the story that the gallery wants to tell and they're trying to really force it, you know, really force the square peg into the round hole. And it, it just never works. Your agenda is not their agenda. My agenda will never be their agenda right. because I know what my end game is. I know my goal. How I get there is very interesting in a lot of ways, but it's what I know how to do. A gallerist doesn't know how to do that because no. you're right, they don't think that way. It's their light name and headlines. I remember people saying to me, I'm going to make a counter card for you to take on TV with the artist with the, the name of the gallery. I go, no, you're not. I said, we're going to have a text crawl where you can see this. But no, we're going to put the art on and the artist because that's what people are going to see. And they're like, well, I want my name played somewhere. And I'm like, it's not happening. Right. And they're like, well, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm like, but I do because they're going to run a text crawl. And it's, believe me, a lot of my time spent is spent educating my clients. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yes. They don't get it. Oh, well, we have a great name here in Austin. I'm like, okay, well, but but you're paying me and you're bringing in these two artists. You're paying for them to 
come here to be the media exposed person for what it is, you need to let me make it an event. And that's really what the bottom line is. But take that to the top level. You just know at a meeting at Coca-Cola with their, you know, one of their many publicist firms that are on, you know, contract with them, they don't make the point, you know we're the number one cola brand in the world, right? That isn't the point. Because it's about Sofia Vergara holding a bottle of Diet Coke. But it's also, the whole point of a publicist is no matter where you are to be more. Yeah. It's irrelevant how good you're doing. It's it's about going up another step on the ladder. Or at the best of situations, maintaining that top run of the ladder. You know, even when you're there, you have to do some sort of management to stay there. And those who are there understand that this is a matter of basically good nutrition. It's just oh, what you nutrition. do to, to be a healthy business. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, I'm going to wrap it there. I know you got to get going. Yeah, Thank sure. you so, so very oh, much. Oh, I enjoyed this it. It was great. It's like I felt like this is your life, although I was telling it. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. I'm thinking, gee, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or Well, we have no other version of this. Well, so. No, I, and I'm, I love your platform. I want to come back on. Oh, fantastic. I want to have you back on. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I know there was so much to take away from that conversation. I hope you had your pens out or at least just absorbed as much as you could. There was a lot being brought into it. And if you're anybody in our business who uses a publicist from time to time, uh, you can have listened to that without taking away something of value, perhaps even a little bit of a list. And I know if there's anything on your list, it's, wow, Allison Zucker Perlman, man, that is a publicist with energy. I don't know where she gets it. I don't know how she's been doing this for as long as she has and is still so invigorated by what she does. Allison, thanks for coming on. I hope we get to have you back on again in the future. In the meanwhile, I could use a little bit of help from you guys too. You know, it's a free show. Uh, We're not looking for anything, but If you want to drop a little something, if you want to put a little something in the proverbial tip jar, there's a way to do it. Go on over to iTunes.com. Give us a review. It makes a big difference. When people give reviews, it helps draw attention to the podcast to others. And that would be the best reward that you could offer us if you've been enjoying this at all yourself. The other one is come and join us over at artdealer.show. And while there, you'll see that we have our email address up there, which is hey, H-E-Y, at artdealer.show, or or just call it Danny at artdealer.show. That works too. And if there's something in the show that you liked in particular or something you didn't, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, This whole podcast is about creating that bit of a watering hole for us as a community to come together. And one of the things that helps get that going is if we can hear from each other directly. So until next time, my fellow art-selling professionals, art dealers, gallery owners, directors, fans of whomever you are out there, I bid you a good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. Come visit us online at artdealer.show.